And we welcome you to this edition of Tuesday People, the podcast. I'm your host, Mitch Album, and the author of the book, Tuesdays with Maury, upon which this podcast is inspired. It was written many years ago as just a way to pay my old professor's medical bills after he had died from Lou Gehrig's disease, and we had taken a last course in what's important in life once you really know you're going to die. I had no idea that it would turn into something that would be embraced around the world, and that the lessons that I learned alongside Maury as he lay dying would actually be the basis of lessons for people both personally and even in school systems all around the world. And so we created this podcast to return to some of those lessons, revisit them, and see how they applied even a quarter of a century later. And we've had a wonderful time doing that over the past year and a half. And periodically, we invite people to join us with points of view that are complementary to those that Maury had and, and that I have. And today is such a case. And we're going to welcome a guest in just one second. I want to say hi to Lisa Goich, my friend and producer of this program, as always, alongside. Lisa, good to have you. Nice to be here, Mitch. I'm very excited about today's guest. Well, and you brought uh, Anita Morjani to my attention. And uh, Anita is the author of several books, including the New York Times bestseller, Dying to Be Me. This new book that she has coming out today, actually, is called, and get ready for it, Sensitive is the New Strong. Sensitive (laughs) is the New Strong, the power of empaths in an increasingly harsh world. And we're going to explain what empaths are and and the uh, value of empathy with Anita Morjani, who joins us now. Hi, Anita. Hi. Hi, Mitch and Lisa. It's wonderful to be here. Well, we're glad to have you joining us. And uh, by way of background, uh, I want, if you would, for you to tell our audience how you sort of became an author, because it's interesting, it's got some parallels to Tuesdays with Maury. You yourself went through a, a, a health experience, fortunately you're still here with us, um, that I'm imagining led to, uh, uh, if, if not a, a reshuffling, uh, certainly a reconsideration perhaps of some things you had thought before. Would you share that with our audience? Yes. Absolutely. So um, I was diagnosed with cancer, with lymphoma, back in 2002 and struggled with it for about four years. And and my health deteriorated. And when I say struggled with it for four years, uh, it, it continued to worsen. So my health deteriorated over a period of four years. And in early 2006, I reached what the doctors said was end stage so by that point, um, my body had stopped absorbing nutrition. The lymphoma had spread throughout my lymphatic system, and I weighed about 85 pounds. I had tumors the size of golf balls from the base of my skull all around my neck, under my arms, in my mm. chest, and in my abdomen. Huh. And um, my organs were starting to shut down. My lungs were filled with fluid. And on February the 2nd, 2006, uh, I went into a coma and the doctors told my family that these were my final hours. But while I was in the coma, I experienced something really, I guess, profound. It was, I was aware of everything that was happening around me, even though my eyes were closed, but I felt as though I'd left my body and I knew I was dying And I experienced the love of my deceased loved ones. I experienced this feeling of tremendous unconditional love. 
But I was in a state of what I call a state of clarity where I understood why I had got sick. I understood how it came to be that I was lying in that hospital bed dying. And I reached a point where I felt that I had a choice of either to come back into my body or to continue on in that death state. But that state was so beautiful. I felt light and free and all the pain was gone, all the pain from the disease, all the fear was gone, the fear of dying, the fear of being sick, and all of that was gone. So no part of me wanted to come back. I wanted to stay on that side. But then I was told, in fact, because I was surrounded by my deceased loved ones, like my deceased father and a best friend who I'd lost, they were telling me that it's not your time and you need to go back. And I couldn't understand why at first, because my body was so sick and I was suffering. My family was suffering, taking care of me. But then I understood that um, now that I knew the truth of why I had got sick in the first place, that now that I, and I, and I realized while I was there that we are all actually much more powerful than we've been led to believe we are. We are, our bodies are actually much more um, resilient and magical. And so I understood that now I knew the truth of who we really are and why I had got sick, that I, that, that if I chose to come back into my physical body, it would heal and it would heal quickly. So my dad, my deceased father, it was him that I felt telling me that now that you know this truth, you need to go back and live your life fearlessly. And that's when I started to come out of the coma. Hmm. And within days, the tumors just started to shrink and the doctors were shocked. They couldn't explain it. And after five weeks, I was released to go home from the hospital cancer-free. And although I was still working on building up strength in my body and everything, but I was cancer-free in five weeks. Now, uh, this is such such a fascinating tale. We're, we're both Lisa and I, who are you know, wow. we're, we're looking at one another with our mouths dropped open, like, <laughs> yes, okay, then what? Then what? what? Um, I want to wow. ask you uh, just more out of curiosity. Then I've talked to many people who have had near death experiences, and and in fact, uh, my second book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, was based on one of my relatives going through exactly that. Who uh, an old uncle of mine who rose above the operating table where they were working on him and they lost him for a few seconds and said that he also saw all of his deceased relatives waiting for him there. Uh, he didn't talk to them, but they were there and he had sort of had a choice to go with them or go back into his body. And I've heard this versions of this impression of what comes next from many different people. Did you experience actually sight? When you say your father was talking to you, do you actually remember some kind of visual experience or was it a voice? How did it present? So it's um, not sight exactly the way we have it here, um, but there is a presence. So it's like um, they present themselves in the way we remember them at the at the age that we remember them to be. And, uh, and it's like, you, you know, that it, it's weird. It's like, you know, you're not using your physical eyes, but yet you 
see, you're aware of the image. You see the image of who they are. You know exactly who it is that's communicating with you. And they're not communicating with you using voice and language. It's literally like they're imprinting into you exactly what they want you to know. Wow. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really interesting experience. And what happens, though, is that it's like um, you're having you're actually in the depth of an experience of it. And then when you come out of it, like when I came out of the coma, I was in the coma for about 36 hours. So just a day and a half or so. Mm -hmm. Um, But when you come out of it, um, when you recollect it back, you have to put everything into linear time and give it, when you're talking about it, you then have to give it all words. But when you're there, it's not words. It's the whole thing is like an imprint, like a sensation. And have you it's found now, as the very- years have gone by, because this was 2002, so we're talking almost 20 years ago, yeah. does it fade? Uh, yeah, 2006. It 2006, doesn't, 2000, okay. <clears throat> excuse me. It doesn't 2006 fade. 2006 when the... It doesn't fade because what happens is that it changes the trajectory of your life. So sure. it's like you've open the door, and it changes the way you perceive life. And it changes everything you do moving forward from that point on. And so that becomes the new point of reference. Prior to that, your point of reference is what you've learned as you were growing up, what your parents taught you, what you learned at school, and you take those to be true. From that point on, I realized that so much of what I learned as a child was not true. And so it gives you a whole new frame of reference. And so as you put it into practice, this new way of being, and you see that, oh, my gosh, this really is a better way of being. Oh, wow, this is more effective. You know, this it is true that the way I used to think before and be before is what led to my illness. And, you know, so it's interesting because you see it pan out. And so it's very hard to actually forget the Hmm. The the incident or the catalyst for which your life just changed and went in a completely different direction. Yeah, it sounds like uh, it, it may not be a great uh, metaphor, but it sounds like trying to forget that you became a parent. You know, your your life turns so <laughs> differently once you have children, and and all your concerns are different, and all the rest. And and it'd be like like, well, can you remember? You know, uh, uh, can you think like you were before you had children? He said, not really, not once they're in your life. You can't pretend they they don't exist. And it sounds a little bit like that. That this really informed you. You said something there that I've got to ask you about, and I do want to uh, get to the bulk of our our program, which is going to be about sensitivity and and empathy. But you said you realized that the way that you had been before somehow led you to be sick. What do you mean by that? So I never realized it before. So anyway, that that whole incident that happened, so I just wanted to say that I, I shared it. I shared it online, and, so, and, and then I didn't expect this to happen. I didn't even use my real name, but my story went viral, and that's how I became a published author and uh. got discovered. But I didn't expect that. That was so unexpected. But um, what I realized was that I was somebody who was a people pleaser, someone who never said no. I was somebody who was what I kind of affectionately call a doormat. And so I had always, I'd never valued myself. And I always made myself small so other people could be could feel big. 
I believed it was selfish to love myself or take care of myself. I always felt it was better to serve others. And so I literally lived a life in servitude. And it didn't help that I come from a culture with tremendous gender disparity where men are favored over women. And so even as a youngster, I was groomed for an arranged marriage and was groomed to believe that I was socialized to believe that I always had to be dependent on the men in my life, you know, on my father mm-hmm. um, before marriage and a husband and, and then a husband that would be chosen by my parents. So I was socialized that way. And it was only in death did I realize that, oh, my gosh, my life actually matters. My opinions matter. My That I am also a product or a child of the divine And I came here to shine my own light and be all that I can be. And so that's what I realized. And I realized that I had made myself so small and suppressed myself so much to the point of being invisible that it was like my own body was, um, you know, I suppressed my energy to the point where my body manifested a disease to be heard, to be felt by me, to be loved by me. Hmm. Wow. Hmm. And so well, I, I have to imagine what that. Uh, what 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 did what did you do, by the way, prior to that? You were about, if I got my ages right, you were somewhere in your forties when this happened. What had you What had you been yes. doing? What had your career been prior to that? So prior to that, uh, like what happened is that when I was much younger, my parents had arranged a marriage for me, but I ran away from that marriage um, Mm -hmm. and was completely ostracized from my community and was made to feel or, you know, I believed that there was something wrong with me and that I was, you know, made to feel that I was really choosy and picky and so on. I eventually met the man that I I fell in love with and he was absolutely, he, he is still my husband. He's absolutely wonderful, but I struggled to fit into Uh, my community. I did work, but I was somebody, again, because I understand now because of my social conditioning, I really struggled in life because I was literally a doormat. I was someone who was always being bullied or exploited. and, And I was the kind of person that never stood up for myself. And so even at work, I was bullied. I would always attract the bullying boss. Um, and, and so life wasn't that easy for me before, prior Mm. to this near-death experience. Well, let's talk Um, about how you went from that to this latest sort of point of view and, and, and work of yours, uh, book work of yours, Sensitive is the New Strong, the Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World. Now, you've told us that you were kind of raised and, and, and oriented towards being Sensitive is one word. Serving is another that you've used. Uh, but let's start with that question. Sensitivity, we all know, is is a good thing, uh, but we don't all practice yeah. it. We don't all practice it at the same level. Some of us will say, I am being sensitive <laughs> when we're being anything but. Uh, and some <laughs> of us can clearly be too sensitive. And and every little thing is, is like a, 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 a bolt of lightning that hurts us. So, first of all, let's talk about what sensitivity in its best form should be, in your opinion, Anita. Um, Sensitivity in its best form is having compassion for others, for people, 
and for the planet in its best form. It is about thinking of others, but it is also having compassion for ourselves. So it is in its best form. You don't neglect yourself, but you don't neglect others either. So there is no need to to exploit others. So you are sensitive to the needs of others, and there is no need for you to feel that you need that that you need to be exploited. In other words, be a doormat to win other people over either. Um, so sensitivity in its best form is an awareness of the needs of others and being able to help others and in a healthy way, being able to support others in a healthy way and also being very gentle and aware of the needs of the planet. Right. So, so let's talk let's talk about others for now, because the planet is a different discussion, uh, worthy discussion. But for purposes of our, of our podcast here and our time, let's focus on others in, at first. If we have time, then we'll get to the planet. Um, when we are talking about sensitivity to others, give me some examples of what you feel in today's world, in 2021, are some of the areas where we are most insensitive or non-empathetic to others that we should begin to disassemble. Um, I feel that, oh gosh, this is a big question because I almost feel like, where do I begin? Right. <laughs> I feel that where we are not sensitive to others is um, where, in a, on a large, on a really on a global scale, I feel that as a race, a human race, we have far more, we focus far more or we direct our finances or our focus far more on um, killing people, on killing each other than we do on feeding each other. Mm-hmm. Um, governments are much more concerned about weapons and nuclear weapons and armaments than they are about helping countries and helping alleviate poverty. So that's like on starting at the at the macro, at the largest right. level, I feel right. that's where we are completely insensitive. Because if you wiped out poverty completely, you wouldn't need wars or anything. That's that's what I believe at the at the largest level. But going down at the more micro, on a day to day level, um, I believe that, it, for example, in our education system, instead of teaching kids competitiveness and having them need to win, beat out other kids to get higher test scores because we're brought up to believe that there's only a certain amount, there's not enough to go around, there's not enough college places, and so we all have to get ahead and we have to beat out the other kids. We should be teaching a completely different paradigm to our kids. We should be actually teaching them that collaboration is much more um, effective for us in the long run than competition. We should be actually giving kids real life lessons instead of just giving them tests and having them win out other kids and tests. We should actually be encouraging kids to do things like take on roles and maybe maybe to give kids an exercise of spending a week as a paraplegic and say, okay, for this whole week, you're going to pretend that you're confined to a wheelchair and then you're going to report back as to what did you struggle with? How did it feel? And so on. And what will happen is if you give kids exercises like this to do, 
they then become sensitive. You know, you can have a kid pretend to be to have no eyesight for a week or something. Mm -hmm. And then immediately what happens is these kids start to empathize with people who are struggling and going through their own struggles because they'll have experienced a week in their own life going through what they go through. And you will have kids being really creative on how to alleviate these things in the world or how to, how to help people or how to create technology or equipment to make life easier for people who are struggling because they'll experience that. And kids are very creative. So I feel it's, uh, you know, at the micro level, we don't encourage or teach it in schools. Let's take the micro level, uh, but uh, a little older. How about in relationships in in uh, loving relationships in marriage? Where is the right balance of sensitivity and empathy that both people are uh, are rewarded, both people are recognized, uh, but neither one is overrun and neither one feels like uh, all they do is give and they don't get? So one of the key things that I talk about is, and this is particularly, so the book is actually directed at uh, what I call empaths. And, uh, and highly sensitive people. So it's directed at people who are already empaths and super sensitive and find that because they are that way, they are um, finding that they are constantly tired or drained because they are, um, they are always the ones doing the giving and not receiving, giving and giving and not receiving. So one of the key things that I speak about in the book is the most important thing is when you identify you are overly sensitive or that you are an empath, the key thing for you is to learn to love yourself if you want to have a healthy relationship. And so with relationships, the a dysfunctional relationship is when uh, one person is oversensitive and the other is undersensitive. Another dysfunctional relationship can be when both people are oversensitive but are not but are not aware they're both oversensitive, so they're both hurting each other inadvertently. The healthiest relationships are when is when both partners are are strong in themselves and they can both be sensitive, they can both be empathic or uh, or but but when they are strong that they know that they don't need to exploit the other one because they're self-sufficient, but they also know their boundaries and don't allow themselves to be exploited, then they attract someone who is exactly the same. And then what happens is that when the two partners are doing things for each other, um, it's coming from a place of love. It's absolutely coming from a place of love. When it's dysfunctional, we do things for each other because we're trying to win approval. Mm-hmm. That's what a lot of sensitive people do. Sensitive people are sensitive to criticism. And so in order to avoid criticism, we give and give of ourselves because we want to win the approval of the other person. Even when we don't want to do something, we still do it because we're more afraid of the criticism. Right. That's, right. that's the downfall of someone who's oversensitive. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Anita, I can relate to that 100%. I am highly sensitive. I am an empath. I am a people pleaser, and I don't know how to say no. So how do you <laughs> learn to stick up for yourself and learn to love yourself without worrying about 
making somebody mad at you. You know, it's hard for me to say no because I'm always worried that somebody else will become mad at me. And then that will only exacerbate everything I've always believed in as to why I don't say no. Do you know what I mean? Yep. I know exactly what you mean. So the first thing is awareness. And you've got that. You've got the awareness that you are an empath and that um, and that you have this tendency. So there is that awareness. Then the second thing to realize is that if you continue to say yes, even when you want to say no, what will happen is that you will start to become drained of energy, but also you will start to resent those people. So oh, even yes. if they don't, yeah, so even if you don't get to the point where you say no and they're going to explode at you, you're going to start <laughs> to resent them. And so oh, yeah. the question to ask is that, do I want to resent them or do I want to feel love for them? And I'll tell you, I have a friend who has no problem saying no. I mean, she can, she just says no. And sometimes it feels jarring to me. But I get over it because one of the things that I've learned from this friend is that I never have to second guess how she feels. And I know right. that when she's with me, it's because she wants to be with me um, because she and, and I find it very honest. So in a, in a way that when we're doing things out of obligation, we're actually being dishonest. And so I want to flip it and I want to ask you this. Imagine if everybody or every nice thing they've ever done for you, they've done it because out of obligation. They didn't want to do it, but they want, but they did mm -hmm. it for you because they didn't want to displease you. How would you feel oh, if yeah. you found that out? I would feel horrible. It's awful. I would, you know, then, then yeah. that makes you feel guilty in all those other things. And that's the other thing too, is that I, I do do that, what you were saying, you know, well, I'll say yes to something and then I resent it. And then I find myself like, say, going to a dinner or doing something I didn't want to do. And then I arrive and I'm all huffy or I, you know, I snap at people because I really don't want to be there. And so all of that stuff yeah. is just because I couldn't say no to something. And I understand what you're saying because I have friends who are like the person you're talking about where they can say no. And it, it upsets me sometimes because I'm like, wow, uh, that was quick. I can completely relate to that. I, I, I understand what you're saying. And I think it's well, a big problem with people. Yeah, it, a lot it, of it people is. And clearly, as, as, you're, as I'm listening to the two of you talk about it, it's, it's, it's obviously prevalent. It's obviously something that enters into a lot of different relationships. And, and you're right, Anita, the balance of this is very, very important. Um, I know that Maury talked a lot about being empathetic and sensitive and compassionate. Compassion was one of the key things that he felt he had learned through his disease and his dying. Uh, he also, uh, like cancer, but in a, in a much more linear fashion, ALS you know, begins to wear you down yeah. and scratch away at you and take away your feet, your arms, your, your, you know, your, your neck, the use of your torso, uh, eventually your voice, and you know, you're reduced to the absolute minimal physical activity, yet your mind stays perfectly intact throughout the process. And, and he found that as this process was, was running through him, yeah. that compassion for other people was much easier for him because uh, I, I would watch even uh, TV programs once in a while. We turn on the television and he, if they happen to show some footage of a, 
a war or some something like that, he would start crying. And I would say to him, I, why are you crying? And he'd say, well, this is just so terrible. And I said, yeah, but it's halfway around the world. You don't even, you've never been to those countries. You don't know the language. You don't know the, And he said, well, you know, Mitch, when you're dying, um, it's so much easier to understand everyone else's suffering. And, and, and everyone else's, the, the, the sort of universal suffering, mankind's suffering, you are now officially part of, and therefore you can be empathetic and compassionate to other people, even if you don't know their names or personal connections, because you're unified by that suffering. And um, in, in listening to you and, of course, observing your life story, I would imagine going through four years of battling cancer um, did a lot of that for you as well. And do you find that uh, one of the reasons that people may not be the empaths, to use your phrase, that they could be, is because they are yet to have suffered, perhaps in a way that allows them to see the universality of it. It could be. I think that when people suffer, they develop compassion. But I believe that uh, being an empath is something a little bit different. So um, there's compassion and empathy, and then there's being an empath. I believe that we can help people to develop more compassion and empathy, like through learning and life experiences and even the way we uh, teach kids at school and so on. But I think that some people are actually born empaths. And what that means is that we actually feel what other people are feeling. We feel the energy around us. And oh, and by the way, I love Tuesdays with Maury and I loved the story. I read the book many years ago and, and I love his compassion and I agree with him about wars. It's, it's senseless. Wars are senseless yeah. and, and it makes me sad. But, you know, I wonder if Lisa, if you relate to, to actually being an empath, because one of the things that I re- realized in recent years and hence the third book is that um, you know, like even though I knew what caused my what caused me to get the cancer, it was me suppressing my own energy. One of the things I didn't understand was that I was an empath, and that discovery was that it was like me. I suddenly discovered, like, oh, I see. This is why I it, it, I was so susceptible to being a people pleaser and mm-hmm. a doormat. Um, this is why, because because. Some of us actually feel what other people are feeling. I had always thought everybody feels this way, but they don't. Mm -mm. Some of us, when we enter a room, we can actually feel the energies of the people in the room. You can actually tell if it's, if people are happy or unhappy. And, and when people are not happy, because we feel their energy, we want them to feel good. So we go out of our way trying to make someone feel good because when they don't feel good, we don't feel good. And we're right. super sensitive to criticism as well. Do you relate to that, Lisa? A hundred percent. I was a stand-up comedian for a long time, and I could walk into a room and walk onto a stage. And if I zeroed in on somebody, even before I opened my mouth, that I could tell was not in it to win it that night, I would I would <laughs> absorb it. You know, I would absorb their negativity, yeah. and it would affect all 35 minutes of whatever I was about to say only from one person I could feel it coming at me I'm like that all the time I can I can do it in a zoom meeting if I'm in a meeting in my office and if I start speaking I can see somebody's eyes roll when they're not even rolling I (laughs) I just 
I feel it. You know, I, I, I hate being like that. I wish I wasn't like that. And the first time that I read about empaths, I mean, a light bulb went off and I said, I, this is me. This has been me my whole entire exactly. life. And I think you are just born exactly. that way. Yes, that's exactly, that's exactly what this, who this book is for. And so I realized, so even though I explained in dying to be me, everything that happened, I didn't realize at that time that I was an empath. And it's only in recent years that I realized that, oh, that's what made me even more susceptible to getting, mm -hmm. to getting that, uh, to getting that ill. Because even now as a speaker, and I'm, I, I'm out on stage and, and speaking to tons of people. If there is one person who's not happy, who, as you say, proverbially rolls their eyes at me or someone during the Q and A that, um, that maybe has a, a criticism, I will focus on trying to win that one person over. Uh, mm -hmm. and it, it kind of brings down what I'm actually doing for the rest of the room. And I, I noticed I do that. And so I've had to, um, I've had to compensate for that. And so, so this is actually a lot of what I write about and the tools I've developed to, to actually help me through this because I don't want to go back to being the person I was who got the cancer. And at that time, my life was a smaller life. And now I have this whole different life and it's like, oh, I can see how as an empath, we can fall back into that trap. Hmm. Yeah. Are you really, are you worried that, you know, if you take your empathetic uh, tendencies to the wrong degree, you will actually get physically sick again? I think that um, what happens with empaths is that they, they have a tendency to deplete their energy because of the people around them. And when we deplete our energy, I'm not saying that it would be like a life or death thing. You know, it wouldn't be like going back to getting cancer and dying or anything as dramatic as that. But um, I do find myself getting worn down if I am around people that who if I am trying to jump through their hoops or if right. I'm trying too hard to even the, even they'll if I keep I'm putting up more hoops. To, to, if yeah. you're going to jump through the yes. hoops, they'll keep putting up another hoop and say, jump higher. Yeah. Is there, yes, a, is, is, is there in your uh, in your book, uh, Sensitive is a New Strong, is there a, a part where people can sort of take a, a self-test to find out if they are indeed an empath? Are there a checklist yes. that you can say, you know, if you are this, you are an empath? A little bit yes, like exactly. you know you're a redneck if. <laughs> you know you're an empath if. Chapter one, there's actually a test with like 34 questions, but I've also put that test in my website so they can even know before they buy the book. But uh, there's a there's a test um, with about 34 questions, and then if you answer yes to like more than 25 or 28 of them, you're definitely an empath. Got it. <laughs> and, well, Lisa, I think and, we know where so you come down. You don't even have to take that test. I, you're, you're, I haven't even read them yet. I yeah. think my question, this is my general question. Do you think that I'm mad at you right now? Okay, you're an empath. That's, my, <laughs> that's, that's how I live my life. <laughs> well, this is really, really good, really good advice, Anita. <laughs> and uh, we recommend that people pick this up. You know, I, I, one of your conclusions is that sensitivity is a gift and empathetic people are a gift. And rather than feeling, oh, what's the matter with me? 
that I feel for other people? What's the matter with me that I'm always so sensitive to trying to please people? I got to stop this. The answer is not to become insensitive. The answer is not to become non-empathetic. The answer is to find a balance in which the best part of you, which is something that we should all strive for, the, the empathetic part, is balanced by being empathetic and loving towards yourself so that you're not swallowed up by your empathy because if you are, you're not really able to deliver it in the way that it can best be served. Uh, you don't want to deliver it out of obligation or out of fear of disapproval. You want to deliver it because it is the right thing to do in the human mm-hmm. condition. And we should all be sensitive and empathetic to one another. So it's really a, a, really a valuable uh, lesson, Anita, and, and unusual. You know, I don't read a lot of books that deal with this particular element of our lives, sensitivity and empathy. So I want to congratulate you on putting this out and, and wish you the best of luck with it as I know it's just getting launched now. Hopefully we've opened some people's yeah. eyes to uh, what's out there and, and they can get it as of today. It's good timing because today is the publication day. So um, congratulations to, to you, Anita, and, and thank you for coming on the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show, and, and I love your work as well. Thank you for what you do. That's very kind of you. And thank you both. Anita Morjani is the author of Sensitive is the New Strong, The Power of Empaths in an Increasingly Harsh World. So, Lisa, you are, you are more powerful than you realize. We just have to See? get you to stop worrying so much See? About, about who's rolling their eyes without even rolling their <laughs> eyes. I like that. I can see you rolling your eyes, and you're not even rolling your eyes. <laughs> I can see it from a mile away. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, we hope you enjoyed our conversation with Anita Morjani. Uh, the book, again, is Sensitive is the New Strong, and it's out by Atria Books today. Uh, and if you enjoy our conversations you want to find out more about them we tuesdaypeople.com on the web is where you can go you can join in our discussions and find out about previous shows as well uh, until then on behalf of lisa goich this is mitch album saying see you next tuesday thank you for listening to tuesday people to be part of our conversation join the tuesday people community at we tuesdaypeople.com subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday people.